ladies and gentlemen, my name is Peter Sutherland. I'm chairman of the Board of Governors of LSE. And it's a great honor to have with us today Ambassador uh, Ron Kirk. It's a particular pleasure for me to have him here because in an earlier incarnation I was involved with the World Trade Organization and I know, as you all know, the importance of the role that he plays. <coughs> as the United States Trade Representative, in effect Minister for Trade, he is of course a member of President Obama's cabinet and serves as the President's principal trade advisor, negotiator and spokesperson on trade issues. <laughs> and these include, of course, not merely the bilateral and regional agreements, but also the multilateral trade agreements uh, uh, and the discussion and negotiation of them. Since he was confirmed by the US Senate in March 2009, he's led the Obama administration's market opening negotiations and dialogue with trading partners around the world, including the conclusion of bilateral free trade agreements with Korea, Colombia, and Panama advancing the ambitious regional trans-Pacific partnership talks and sustaining serious U.S. engagement with the World Trade Organization. He brings both public service and private sector experience to his current role. He served two terms as the first African-American mayor of Dallas. Prior to becoming mayor, he served as Texas Secretary of State under Governor Ann Richards. In addition, he practiced law as a partner in the international law firm Vincent & Elkins. He was named one of the 50 most influential minority lawyers in America by the National Law Journal in 2008. I always hate doing what I have to do next, which is to, to say that for those Twitter users in the audience, <laughs> I don't even understand what I'm saying. Uh, for those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag, whatever that is, I keep saying it, I must inquire as to what it means, for today's event is hatch LSE USTR. <clears throat> so anyway, for those who that means something to, I've, I've said it. As usual, after the lecture, we will have um, a question and answer session. And I'd now ask you to welcome Ambassador Kirk to LSE to deliver his lecture entitled Advancing Global Trade and Employment Together. Shared Opportunities and Responsibilities for the United States and the European Union. Ambassador. Well, first of all, Chairman Sutherland, thank you so much for your kind introduction, but also thanks for your extraordinary contributions to the world of trade and peace and development uh, throughout your home country and Europe and the world. Thank you to all of the students and faculty here at the London School of Economics for your warm welcome. I would say um, uh, to Mr. Sutherland, I'm, I am as mystified by you, by the world of Twitter, but I understand we do tweet at USTR, so. And I can tell you, I have to tell you one interesting thing, during the President's State of the Union, my daughter proudly uh, texted me when it was over that I was trending number five on tweets during the State of the Union for reasons you wouldn't understand. Some kid tweeted, who's the old guy rocking the Harry Potter glasses? <laughs> and then apparently this lengthy discussion went on as to whether I knew these were Harry Potter glasses or I had any idea, but I was number five for a while, so I am thrilled to be here. Uh, I am humbled 
um, to share a lecture. Do I understand that great thinkers like Friedrich Haig and Lionel Robbins have shared, and they were some of the first great thinkers to advocate the economic benefits of trade liberalization. But I have to tell you, I'm equally impressed that I understood that at some point, maybe, um, Mick Jagger wandered these halls before deciding he might have a different career uh, in international affairs, and I think things turned out okay for Mick. Uh, but I'm not here to talk about our mutual love of rock and roll or music, uh, but I do want to talk with you about our uniquely successful transatlantic trade and investment partnership between Europe and the United States. More specifically, I want to take a few moments and explore with you ways that the United States and European Union um, can continue to work together to enhance our economic growth and invigorate global trade for the next century. Our future trade efforts will surely build on a strong record of our past success. After World War II, Europe and American policymakers worked together to frame an international trading system based on open markets and the rule of law. And on balance, that model has served us well for more than 60 years, from the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade to the World Trade Organization as we know it today. Over the past six decades, the United States and Europe have built the largest, most advanced, most mature, and deeply integrated trade and investment partnership anywhere in the world. But now we confront economic challenges that require us to work even harder to enhance the competitiveness of our economies and to promote economic growth and create the jobs of the future. Key trade and investment issues that we grapple with today are more difficult, frankly, than most of those we've tackled in the past. At this critical moment, the United States and European Union are considering how to enhance our mutual growth, which continues to support greater global prosperity as the world economy evolves in new and important ways. But I think it's important to keep in mind the unique quality and unprecedented scale of this trade relationship. It's worth remembering that transatlantic, our transatlantic economy still accounts for over half of global GDP. In fact, transatlantic trade in goods and services totals more than $1 trillion. And that breaks down to more than two and a half billion dollars in transatlantic trade every single day. Together we are driving foreign direct investment around the world. U.S. foreign direct investment in the EU was worth nearly two trillion dollars in 2010. Similarly, the EU invested over one and a half trillion dollars in U.S. enterprises. The maturity of our trade relationship complements its magnitude. This point was the subject of my very first meeting as U.S. Trade Representative. I was sworn in by the United States Senate. We have a slightly different, more tortuous system than yours, uh, that all of the President's Cabinet gets subject to a formal confirmation by the Senate. I learned this from my uh, first meeting. Three hours after I'd been sworn in, I sat down to dinner 
with my first visitor, the new EU Commissioner for Trade, Baroness Catherine Ashton. Immediately, we agreed on a couple of things. One, that this was one of the most, if not the most important, uh, economic partnership in the world, but that it was becoming obscured because of focus on the number of trade disputes that we had. And we collectively agreed that we would do everything we could to work together to resolve disputes as quickly as we could, wherever we could, so that we could focus on those issues that were much more important. And we agreed to resolve these in a way that would allow us to uh, build a framework for resolving future disputes. And I'm proud of the fact that that's exactly what we did. We had an immediate success in resolving a decades-old dispute that had denied access for U.S. beef exports to the European Union. More recently, we worked together to sign an equivalency arrangement that will help us promote transatlantic trade in organic foods. But in both cases, the outcomes reflected the spirit of cooperation, pragmatism, and a focus on delivering real results, not only for our producers, but for consumers as well. Now, I'm convinced that if we applied the same spirit of common purpose to the current dispute regarding subsidies provided to large commercial aircraft carriers, we should be able to find a mutually beneficial solution and one that removes WTO inconsistent subsidies from the global aerospace sector while leveling the playing field for manufacturers and workers on both sides of the Atlantic. Now, despite our occasional disagreements, the integration of the U.S. and European economies has been an important source of global prosperity and the anchor for each of us in these tumultuous times. And I think it bears noting that even now, during this economic period of difficulty, U.S. and EU trade flows have remained relatively constant. But as we continue to fight our way out of this period of economic uncertainty, a consensus has emerged on both sides of the Atlantic that we can and we should do even more to help fulfill the potential of this extraordinary partnership and to boost growth and support more and better jobs and help meet the competitive challenges of the coming decades. It was this recognition that led President Obama and Presidents Barroso and Van Rompuy to create a high-level working group on jobs and growth last November. And they empowered and challenged myself and Commissioner Carl DeGoot, my EU counterpart, to examine with an unprecedented degree of rigor and cooperation all available options for increasing our economic growth, jobs, and international competitiveness. Over the last several months, our teams have been working together to examine a wide range of possibilities that include some of the following. Elimination of conventional barriers to trade in goods and services such as tariffs and tariff rate quotas across the board. Reducing trade and services as well as to um, reducing barriers to trade and services and the transatlantic investment. Promoting regulatory approaches that facilitate trade and reducing 
eliminating or preventing in the first place what we identify as behind the border barriers to trade in all categories. And finally, to develop rules and principles on other global issues that are of common concern. Now in each of these areas, our teams are assessing the potential economic value of these efforts, the political feasibility of these, as well as the international implications of further liberalization. And we've agreed to be not only ambitious, but realistic as we establish our negotiating parameters and goals. Now from the perspective of the United States, an ambitious transatlantic negotiation, should we uh, choose to pursue this course, would have to achieve full liberalization of market access across all categories of goods and expand Atlantic flows of services and investment as well. We believe that an ambitious approach should identify new approaches to non-bariff tariffs as well. For example, if food and agricultural imports are blocked by health or safety measures, those measures must be supported by sound science and risk assessments. And tackling these types of non-tariff barriers successfully would constitute a major step forward in trade liberalization between Europe and the United States. Now we also understand the need for realism in such a comprehensive approach. Priority market access and other goals of one side often collide with domestic sensitivities or statutory limitations on the other. Now many in Europe have already voiced very strong support for a comprehensive free trade agreement as a single undertaking. And while the United States agreed that this approach represents the most exciting opportunity to liberalize trade between our economies, we want to ensure that its outcomes will be at least as broad and ambitious as those contained in our existing trade agreements with other economies. With so many jobs at stake right now, neither the U.S. nor the European Union can afford to leap into open-ended negotiations on good faith alone. Our mutual urgent needs to enhance growth and employment compel us to identify short, a short path to success before we launch these negotiations. And that's why we are working quickly and thoughtfully to identify possible landing zones. Now, if our working group's dialogue and analysis determines that the most ambitious outcomes are not likely to be achieved through full-fledged comprehensive negotiations at this time, then the United States stands ready to explore how we can work with the, U the European Union to reach agreements in areas where we do have shared ambitions. After all, our leader's mandate was not go big or go home. It was to identify options that are both achievable and that will enhance economic growth and help create jobs within the immediate future. By that standard, the United States is committed to finding the smart, prudent, and most effective way forward on measures to strengthen and deepen transatlantic trade. 
Now, we know that the United States and European Union can successfully and creatively address critical challenges and set high standards for global trade. We've done it before. Last year, U.S. and European leaders joined like-minded countries that included Australia, Canada, Japan, Korea, Mexico, Morocco, New Zealand, Singapore, and Switzerland to conclude the anti-counterfeiting trade agreement. Interestingly enough, at the time, ACTA was heralded as a groundbreaking achievement that will greatly improve the enforcement of intellectual property rights around the world. Sadly, since then, ACTA has been mischaracterized by some and simply misunderstood by a great deal many more. And frankly, I think it is all of our responsibilities to clarify how ACTA helps to promote creativity and innovation of rights holders in every country. And it recognizes the fundamental relationship between innovation and the rule of law. ACTA would change the unfortunate reality that creativity and innovation are often protected more on paper than they are in reality because many economies frankly lack the authority to protect and combat against commercial scale counterfeiting or piracy. We would never allow or tolerate that standard for theft of tangible property. Fortunately, ACTA now provides real tools to stop the wholesale robbery and theft of knowledge-based products. We must also do a better job of emphasizing how ACTA reflects our deep concerns for the health, safety, and welfare of consumers not just in our economies but around the world because they are compromised by counterfeit goods. At the same time, we can collectively point out that ACTA is the first and the only international intellectual property agreement to explicitly provide that enforcement of intellectual property on the internet must, and I want to quote this because this is where I think some of the misunderstanding comes from, it must be implemented in a manner that preserves fundamental principles such as freedom of expression, fair process, and privacy. In other words, ACTA does not dictate to governments how they have to strike this proper balance between protecting IPR and promoting these fundamental principles, but it does give them more tools to be able to make these critical decisions. The hard truth is that intellectual property theft saps the lifeblood out of innovation from any market where it occurs and counterfeit goods put the health and safety of communities and consumers at risk around the world. And since no government can single-handedly tackle the challenge of stopping counterfeiting and piracy, implementing this agreement should be an act of shared leadership. Now as mature and free markets, we both rely heavily on the rule of law to provide a level playing field for our businesses, for our workers, for their families, and for future providers. 
It's why we jointly seek to enhance transparency and non-discriminatory access to global markets. In the Doha round of talks in Geneva, we have worked together to develop and advocate tougher subsidy rules for state-owned banks and state-owned industrial enterprises. The EU has also partnered with the United States in two important trade enforcement initiatives against export restraints on industrial raw materials and key rare earth minerals, respectively. Earlier this year, we were successful in the WTO when a panel ruled in our favor in the raw materials case that such restraints effectively distorted the global market for each of these key manufacturing inputs. What these cases demonstrate is that when the European Union and the United States stand together on issues like this, we amplify the message that market-based competition is an essential element of the global trading system. We also have common interests in expanding global services trade and investment, as well as helping many of our small and medium-sized businesses to increase their international trade. In the Transatlantic Council, um, for example, we have made progress on common standards and regulations for electric vehicles. We've reached agreement on common principles for investment, information and communication technology services, and regulatory services. Best practices in Washington and Brussels are identifying ways to support small businesses try to crack international markets. This shared sense of responsibility and opportunity also drives our joint work to promote trade and investment integration in economies transitioning to freedom in the Middle East and North Africa, or as we refer to them in the MENA region. And the United States and European Union have a very strong common interest in the economic development and stability of all MENA economies. And so we are working jointly and through the G8's Deauville Partnership to promote policies that trade, that support trade, investment, job creation, and regional trade and integration. We're also eager to increase our trade and investment links with MENA countries in transition. Just last month, we and the Deauville Partners met at the Dead Sea and discussed priority trade and investment issues like investment, trade facilitation, and support for small and medium-sized businesses. Our hope is that these discussions will yield common approaches that will improve MENA countries' access to one another's markets as well as strengthen their competitiveness in the global environment. Our bilateral and regional efforts complement our work at the multilateral level as well, where we continue our long history of shared leadership alongside other emerging players. From GATT to the WTO, the United States and European Union have worked together to advance trade liberalization by making the tough decisions necessary to open markets more broadly. And Dr. Sutherland can explain that to you sometime in greater detail, having lived through both of those. We have worked jointly to enable the expansion of WTO membership to more and more countries. As a result, today, there are increased opportunities 
at the, multi at the multilateral negotiating table as well as high expectations, not only of the United States and the EU, but also for these emerging economies that have benefited the most from multilateral integration and trade liberalization, such as Brazil, China, India, South Africa, and very soon Russia, to help find new ways toward additional market opening achievements at the multilateral level. Now to be sure for the last 10 years, the United States and European Union have made extraordinary efforts to try and conclude the most far-reaching multilateral trade negotiations ever, the Doha Development Agenda. But at our ministerial conference in Geneva last December, all WTO members made the honest assessment that the Doha negotiations were frankly at an impasse. And the United States sees no utility in the WTO returning to the negotiating dynamic that existed before. Frankly, the clear message that emerged from our December ministerial is that it's time to move on and start charting a new course that identifies concrete opportunities to advance trade liberalization and reinforce the WTO as a bulwark against protectionism. Now this will require fresh ideas as well as learning from the past what's worked and what has worked and what has not worked. One of those lessons is that strong plurilateral results often serve as stepping stones to broader multilateral measures. The Uruguay Round included many multilateral commitments that were built on plurilateral codes from the preceding Tokyo Round. Today, forward-leading members of the WTO are exploring a plurilateral services negotiation that would go farther in opening service markets than any previous measures before. This potential international services agreement will directly address cutting-edge issues such as international data flows that were only in their infancy at the launch of the Doha Round. The United States and like-minded partners are also exploring the expansion of products covered by our historic information technology agreement, which has already led to huge increases in international trade in information and communication technologies. Multilateral efforts are also continuing on trade and development, least developed countries' issues, as well as trade facilitation. Without a doubt, strong partnership between the United States and the European Union in these and other areas will enhance our prospects for success. And we must not forget the essential role of the WTO bodies to support strong existing trade rules and to guard against protectionist impulses. We need to rediscover and invigorate these bodies to advance implementation of our agreements by addressing subsidies and regulatory barriers to trade and to explore emerging global trade issues such as the relationship between trade and currency fluctuations. In another sign of its enduring significance, the WTO membership is now nearly universal, particularly with the invitation last December 
to invite Russia to join the WTO in the accession of Kazakhstan, Yemen, Serbia, Bosnia, Laos, and Afghanistan. Every member of the World Trade Organization stands to benefit from Russia's successful entry into a rules-based trading system. And it's why as Russia takes its final steps to join the WTO, the Obama administration strongly supports Congress's terminating application of the Jackson-Vanik Amendment and extending permanent normal trade relations to Russia. The WTO as an institution is evolving and moving forward, and this process should be revitalizing as members begin to think in new ways and learn lessons from the immediate past. And remember the variety of successful approaches that we've employed throughout the years. The United States looks forward to continuing the work with the European Union and other partners to keep the WTO strong and well equipped for years to come. Our collective challenge for this 21st century is to welcome the energy and dynamism of an expanding global trade system without undermining its foundational norms that have supported successful trade liberalization and economic growth since World War II. Having benefited tremendously from open markets and rules-based trade, the United States and Europe have a responsibility to help other economies achieve greater prosperity as well. I am confident that the United States and European Union can meet these 21st century trade challenges together if we draw inspiration from the bold spirit and determination of our predecessors. Our history and our heritage, our broadly shared vision can drive a common quest for more robust economic growth, not just in Europe and the United States, but around the world. Thank you so much for the opportunity to share these thoughts with you. Thank you very much, Ambassador, for that very clear um, and uh, very full explanation of policy as far as the United States is concerned, particularly with regard to Europe. We now open the floor to questions. If you wish to ask a question, I would ask you to state your name and your affiliation um, and wait for a steward with a roving mic to come to you. For any press in attendance, you will have the opportunity to ask questions in the press roundtable, which will take place afterwards. So I would like to keep this questioning to the audience, uh, other members of the audience. Can I have the first question, please? This gentleman on the right. Ali Alagra, Emeritus Professor of International Economic Integration. Given the deep uh, trade and investment relationship between the United States and the European Union, given the impasse in the uh, World Trade Organization uh, Doha Round, given the rise in the East, the fast light in the East, why not uh, a transatlantic free trade agreement covering both trade and investment? Well, I think, Professor, that may be more of a, um, an answer than a question, and it's <laughs> not, to, not to make light of it, but precisely I think that some of the thinking uh, behind the, the charge from our presidents 
for us to explore liberalizing trade through this um, high-level um, um, partnership. And that's exactly what we're exploring. Uh, but we really are. We're guided. For me, I, 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 I'm guided by three principles. One, um, and, and Dr. Sutherland was kind enough to note my work as a mayor. Uh, but having been a mayor, I really am guided by the reality of how frightening the words I'm from the government and I'm here to help you can be to business. Uh, and on one hand, when you start with the fact that this is explosively the largest commercial relationship in the world, the one thing we don't want to do is mess things up. So we're starting, at least we invoke sort of the trade equivalent of a Hippocratic oath to do no harm. But secondly, there is a real sense that given the, the uncertainty and unease over our economies, we want to do things we can accomplish in a reasonably short period of time. And so that's one reason why in my speech you heard me reference the fact that we want to combine ambition with reality. Because we know each, one real strength of our relationship, we know each other well enough that we can be frank. We know what red lines are in Europe and the United States. And one advantage of pursuing this in a comprehensive way is that often gives you a chance to tackle some tougher issues you might not otherwise. But what we don't want to do is have this thing bogged down over what we know could be historical red lines. So that's why we're trying to strike the right balance. Thank you, Ambassador. Next question, Kier. Uh, Hi, thank you. Uh, Mike Foster, postgrad. Um, you mentioned currencies briefly in passing. I just wonder if you could talk a little bit more about the appropriate relationship between exchange rate management, let's say, and, and trade policy, and in particular to what extent is exchange rate management an appropriate subject for the WTO? You know, that, uh, and I think you said, is it Mike? Um, interestingly enough, we held our first sort of think session on the relation of currency and trade at the WTO um, this past summer to begin to address those. There has been, I mean, this has been addressed, I think, uh, more uh, uh, aggressively among the G8 and the G20 by our finance ministers. You know, I would say broadly, from the U.S. perspective, we believe trade works best um, when it is least distorted by any kind of actions government can take. And our sort of fundamental goal always is to have government get their thumb off the scale, however that may look, whether it's through currency manipulation or industrial policy or not enforcing intellectual property rights, and that's what we seek to achieve. This lady here in the front row, please. Thank you. Uh, <clears throat> sorry, Connie Jackson, Stargate Capital, and an alum from a year I don't want to say. <laughs> um, both uh, the EU and the US, uh, in both cases, communities of color have been pretty devastated on the employment front and have disproportionately suffered. Has there been any discussion about looking at some particular uh, initiatives focused on getting more minority businesses, more minority-owned businesses, to look at global trade in, on both sides of the Atlantic? I cannot speak for what the EU is doing in particular. I can tell you it's sort of embedded in the work we're doing in the high-level working group, but separately, part of um, President Obama's strategy to get our economy going and to address Unemployment and, and, and regrettably, one of the sad facts of unemployment around the world is people of color are always 
disproportionately impacted. But President Obama created a national export initiative in which we're looking at everything that affects our opportunity to grow our economy and create jobs through trade, recognizing that most, at least, of our minority and, and women-owned businesses, what we define as small and medium-sized businesses, we have hyper-focused on their needs, uh, recognizing that if you look at, um, if I can take one minute, in the U.S., um, remarkably, there are fewer than 300,000 businesses that export that we can identify, uh, actually less than 290,000. But pretty common around the world, remarkably, anywhere from 93 to 97% of exporters are what we define as small to medium-sized business. Now, in Europe and other economies, that can be 3 to 5% of your base. In the U.S., it's only 1%. So for an economy and administration hyper-focused on job growth, one, we have the practical opportunity that anything that we do that strengthens small businesses is almost a guarantee we're going to be creating jobs in the U.S. because small businesses aren't going to pick up, frankly, and move to China or Malaysia or Mexico or somewhere else. So part of our national export initiative, we're doing it everything from increasing education and training for our SMEs. We're looking at financing, which is critical, as you know, for all SMEs, as well as export promotion through our Department of Commerce. We've done some practical things that the U.S. Trade Rep, I know there are businesses from around, for the first time ever, we have a tariff tool online with all of our tariff schedules. Again, if you're Boeing and Airbus, you have a load of people to figure this out. Small businesses just get frustrated by the complexity of it. So we're doing a number of things. Now, a lot of the work that we're doing with Europe on regulatory conformity, nothing confounds small businesses more than Europe has this form, the U.S. has this form. Anything we can do to make it simpler, easier, cheaper, faster, we think will benefit those businesses of color and other small businesses. Thank you. This lady here. Um, Linda Korsha, um, where are the jobs really in a US-EU free trade agreement? Um, the, when the US lost so many jobs uh, with NAFTA, for instance, and when a trade agreement gives transnational investors such increased rights, when they can utilize uh, the, the global value chains uh, in both goods and services and get the cheap, use the cheapest labor, including skilled labor, from anywhere in the world, and indeed with the mode four element of trade agreements, ship in cheap labor as well. Well, I think the jobs, I think one of the challenges that we have, uh, and one of the reasons I'm so proud to work for this president, is his willingness to confront the reality that in America a lot of people have soured on trade, uh, some for the reasons you articulated, and some of that's based in fact, some's based more in fear, but it doesn't matter. Um, I did one of these pan panels, um, Dr. Southern, a few months ago with um, a very respected economist, an academician I won't name. Uh, when I finished my presentation, he turned to me and said, since when did trade become about jobs? 
This is, this is for real. He said, trade's about rationalizing the global supply chain. And I said, well, at least it became about jobs when our employment rate hit 10%. And 70% of Americans said, we don't want any more trade if it means sending our jobs elsewhere. Let me tell you where the jobs are. And it's one of the reasons I spoke so strongly on ACTA. The reality is the United States and European Union have very advanced economies. And I won't go through and try to address all your um, um, statements about trade and jobs, but there's no question some people have lost their jobs because of trade. And it's one reason the Obama administration insisted when we passed, for example, the agreements with Korea and Panama and Colombia that renewed our trade adjustment assistance program. But the other thing driving job loss in the United States is that we've just become so ridiculously productive. Creativity, automation have led to many times more jobs being lost on factory floors than trade. But still, we have to look the American public in the eye and tell them that we have trade agreements now that give Americans the chance to reap the job-creating benefits of trade and not just as consumptive benefits. So if you have agreements that are balanced, if you have agreements that have strong labor and environmental standards, which we did with Korea, Panama, and Colombia, if you have agreements that have strong protections that foster innovation and creativity like you do with strong IPR, you can create jobs. Now, I mentioned our national export initiative. Um, some people thought it was ridiculously ambitious, but the president wanted us to see if we couldn't double U.S. exports over five years. And a simple rationale is we got to stop just being the world's consumer. America needs to save more, and we need to make more, and we need to sell more, not just to Europe, but to these new emerging economies. And that's where we can have that job growth if we do that. To date, our exports have been up almost 35% over the past 24 months. Trade reached $2.1 trillion. And I tell you that because when you ask where the jobs are, for every billion dollars in trade, that's 1,000 jobs. And, you know, whether you think, and we, we believe our economy's got to grow stronger. But we're proud of the fact that over the past two years, trade is responsible for the creation of 1.2 jobs in the United States. And so we understand some products are going to be made closer to where they have to be sold. But if you do trade right, it can be a driver of our economy and job growth. In this place, I should, I should warn you that it takes a brave man to make any critical comments about academics. I found it extremely <laughs> dangerous in the past. We have somebody here in the top. Yes, please. Or it takes a man who has no ambition of ever attending the London School of Economics <laughs> or, or Wharton or anybody. Spot on. Well, thank you. Uh, my name is Ramesh Shukla. Uh, this wave of austerity that we are experiencing in, uh, well, in Europe and other parts of the world also, I suppose, what is it doing to our aspiration for uh, advancing global growth and, uh, and, uh, and employment? Thank you. You've had a lot of, listen, we are in a period of time that you have to balance the need. You know, I can only look at the United States and tell you that our president understood that inheriting the deep economic challenges we did, only our government had the power to help jumpstart our economy. And our stimulus was absolutely needed. It worked. It achieved its goal. But we understand that that's not sustainable. Now, the challenge anybody has is when you're trying to come out of an accession, a recession is, you know, at what point does austerity begin 
to Chow Golf Grove, at one point the stint spending just deepened the hole that you're in. You're trying to find the right balance. One of the reasons we are so focused on this transatlantic opportunity to create growth in others is we've seen economies around the world now recognize very few of them have the ability to stimulate their economy by government spending. So people are beginning to look at trade. As we say, trade is stimulus without government spending. By relaxing uh, barriers, eliminating barriers to the free flow of trade, it's a great way to stimulate growth and create jobs. And the rest of the world, no matter how well they're doing, and we certainly admire the growth of Brazil, India, Russia, China, but let me tell you, nothing would be more crippling to global trade than to have the United States and Europe's economy in a state of flux. We have not only created this incredible engine, but we have sustained global growth around the world. And it's one of the reasons you see the focus, not just in Europe, but in the United States. You saw it at the GA on what we can all do collectively uh, to help Europe find the appropriate balance between austerity and growth. Macro uh, here. It's a bit like the House of Commons. A sea of hands goes up every time. Uh, hello, uh, my name is Lamont Fair. I'm a health policy student here and formerly a New York physician. Uh, uh, Bernie Sanders, the senator from uh, Vermont, has recently been advocating uh, this transition from patents to prizes, possibly for the pharmaceutical industry, to reimburse them for their innovation. Has his office contacted uh, your department at all to see if this uh, seismic change and how these companies uh, would uh, reap benefits, uh, if that's possible or not? I, I won't, let me, I don't know that his office has contacted it on us directly. You've got to know um, Senator Sanders is very outspoken about how he thinks trade ought to go. I've got to tell you, the area of protecting intellectual property rights and medicines, how we bring pharmaceuticals to market, and the issue of access to medicines, which is critically important to the Obama administration, generates more passion, more discussion as anything we've done. And for that reason, our office has had uh, and continues to maintain a fairly open dialogue with a range of people from around the world in different disciplines, those in the industry, those in the NGO community, on what the appropriate balance is to do. But it's one of our great challenges is at least in the United States, one of the ways we've done that is having a strong, you know, patent copyright protection regime because for the most part, the cost of bringing these goods, you know, these products to market has been borne by industry. But we also understand we have a concurrent responsibility to make sure that poor people around the world have access to these life-changing drugs. But we are always open to new and better ways to do that. Slater here in the middle. Keep the questions short because we have a very strict time limit. Uh, Eva Jordan, I'm a postgrad here uh, in international political economy. Given the enormous increase in um, the free trade agreements post 9/11, could you speak to the role of security in trade policy? You, well, it's one of our our challenges in that it recognizes in my speech you heard me talk about the opportunity we have to address disciplines that frankly just weren't there. I mean, uh, you heard one speaker refer to NAFTA and I mean, when NAFTA was passed, 
I don't. I'm pretty sure we hadn't invented. I mean, you didn't have email. You didn't have all this stuff. You have, but business, you know, occurs in a digital environment now. Now that's a good thing because that makes it easier for you as consumers to to get what you want. But we have to balance legitimate concerns about security because of the ability of the internet as a tool for people who want to do bad things uh, to have that occur versus the reality that some governments can obviously use that to restrict trade or restrict, restrict speech. And that's one of the disciplines we're having to tackle in the WTO. We don't know what that appropriate balance is. We want free flow of information. We don't want to restrict people's rights to associate and share information. You can argue the Arab, the Arab Spring would not have occurred but for Twitter and Facebook and others, uh, it's just how you, you strike that appropriate balance. At the back. Ambassador Kirk, you alluded to the impact or possibilities from the uh, subsidies on the aerospace industry. What about the subsidies on agriculture and its impact for trade and for development, especially for the developing countries around the world? Would you comment on that? Yes, I would, Ambassador. And uh, in my opening remarks, um, I tried to honestly, carefully frame, at least in the context of the United States and the EU, for those that say we want a comprehensive agreement with everything on the table, um, for us, that would mean agriculture. And that's got implications for both the United States and for Europe. I happen to believe that in a world, first of all, in which we are ex seeing in a positive way an explosion of global prosperity, but with new consumers coming of age in places like Africa and India and China and Brazil, we're going to have a huge challenge to feed a world with six billion people. So you would think the European Union, United States, Brazil, other countries that are blessed to not only be able to feed ourselves would make a contribution to the world. Um, I've got to believe there's a way, there's enough in this for everybody that we should be able to, to come to some understanding how you provide um, some safety net for people who farm, but at the same time reduce the um, presence of subsidies in that. But at least in the context of whatever we do with the European Union, one of the key issues for us is the issue of whether or not agriculture would be fully liberalized. Um, lady at the end here, yes. Ambassador, my name is Ariana Gonland. Um, I'm an American and just visiting London. I was wondering if you could address ACTA a little more thoroughly, um, particularly one of the criticisms that my husband's pointed out to me, um, that it would encourage or indeed force internet service providers to essentially spy on their customers in order to comply um, that this sort of monitoring of internet would most likely legally require a warrant but under some of the circumstances of ACTA wouldn't. Could you address that please? I will try to. I, you know the first thing I've asked everybody to do is read ACTA which remarkably most people have not. And I understand there is a huge legitimate debate going on, not just in Europe, but in the United States, as we saw over the Online Piracy Act and PIPA, over the appropriate role between enforcing rights 
and privacy. The reason I took the time to read verbatim what we put in ACTA is that we didn't attempt to get into that. We don't try to change privacy laws in the United States. We stay within the context of what we've done within the digital you know, laws to respect that. ACTA is simply about recognizing that for Europe and the United States, and I'm a parent, I've got two daughters, uh, one who just graduated from Columbia, one who's at NYU, uh, and my biggest fear is whether my girls are going to have it as good as we did. And one of the great, the big question for most developed economies is knowing nothing else about you all, but looking in this audience, everybody my age and up had parents that were able to look us in the eye and pretty confidently say, you're going to have it better than us. And the big elephant in the room now is whether we believe we can make that promise to our kids because we're wondering where the job's going to come from. But for Europe and the U.S., our economies are dependent on innovation and creativity. Producing, developing, creating the next generation technologies that are going to fuel our growth, whether they're on the factory floor or whether they're in, you know, a laboratory at Google or Microsoft. If we live in a world in which we institutionalize the notion, Europe and the United States create it and the rest of the world just steals it and copies it, that's not much of a future for us. And I'm frankly mystified by this whole debate that has seemed to rise up around the world that's saying we're going to fight piracy and counterfeiting is a bad thing. That is principally what ACTA is designed to do, was to take those economies most responsible for creating innovating products and say we are collectively going to try to use the tools that we have and the laws that we have to combat on a more global scale against counterfeiting and piracy. And, you know, I know it's been characterized to do more, uh, but, it, but it frightens me a little bit, that particularly in Europe and the U.S., that we can't come together to make this case in a more persuasive way, because I think it's important that we do. Uh, the last question, I'm afraid, is this lady on the same row in the center. Uh, if you could pass it along. Behind you. Thank you. Uh, before I ask my question, I want to thank the U.S. and the EU for raising their voice for justice for the oppressed in Sri Lanka and the others. Um, my question, um, businessmen in the U.S. and the EU are almost aggressively taken by Sri Lankan high commissioners uh, to Sri Lanka and they are sold lands um, there, but I want them, the U.S. and the EU, to check the land rights because this land are in the lands are in the north where it is highly militarized and people Tamils are uh, fearing to get back to their land and people are languishing in their uh, camps and they are being dumped in cleared jungles. So I want the businessmen overseas to check the land rights before they buy the lands from Sri Lankan government. Thank you. Thank you. I thank you for the question. The point that you've made is very clear. It's not, I think, an appropriate question for the ambassador. So I'm going to take one further question. Uh, I'll take this uh, gentleman on the left who's been looking for the floor for a long time. Thank you very much. Uh, Mr. Ambassador, um, next year uh, the Congress is going to have to cut quite a bit of American expenditure. 
what are the implications of that for that is the uh, for the promotion um, of trade if in at least in the short term uh, the, 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 might, the Americans might have to have to cut back a little bit in terms of their public spending thank you well I appreciate your question and if, if you my earlier dissertation which went on too long um, look we understand um, that long term the United States has to tackle our deficit um, but the president has re wisely, I think, laid out a pathway that we can do that, but make those critical investments in areas that will help grow our economy, um, in education of our young people. Um, the reality is that Europe and the United States are now uh, in a position that we are competing <clears throat> against other young minds around the world that have looked at our economic success to produce the incredible numbers that I, that I gave you at the beginning. And the rest of the world has in a positive way said, we like this, we want in. But it means we've got to up our game. So we've got to have an infrastructure that meets the 21st challenges. We've got to have the best and brightest young minds. The President also believes and has asked the Congress to make sure that at a period of time the world is more amenable to engaging in the United States with trade that we have the resources there. So that's as part of that national export initiative, the President has asked specifically for more resources, for example, for our Department of Commerce to do exactly what you said in export promotion. He's asked for more resources for our office to make sure that we can enforce our trade agreements and we created an International Trade Enforcement Center that we're getting funding. We hope that Congress will see the value of these and even, even as we struggle to get the right balance, make sure we invest in those areas that will help us continue to grow. Ladies and gentlemen, I know that there are many questions that remain unanswered and for that I apologize. On your behalf, I would firstly like to thank the Ambassador for the candor of his answers, for his commitment to open trade and for the structures and institutions that maintain it and for what he has said to us today which I've, I've, I found and I'm sure you all found very very interesting. Secondly I would ask you to remain seated until the ambassador leaves the uh, room uh, but now I would ask you on behalf of LSE to uh, congratulate the ambassador in the usual way. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, thank you.